Well, good morning and happy Easter, everyone. It is so good to be uh, celebrating with you on this, uh, this morning. And uh, if you are visiting with us, if you're a guest of ours uh, uh, this morning, um, let me uh, add my voices to those that have hopefully warmly welcomed you already. Uh, we are so very glad that you are, have joined us on this special morning. And today we are um, celebrating the single most important event in the history of humanity, and that is the, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, this past Friday, of course, was all about Jesus' death upon the cross, and Saturday yesterday was about Jesus being buried in the ground. But today, uh, Easter Sunday, is about the resurrection, his resurrection from the dead. And I want to begin this morning by talking about uh, Thomas Jefferson. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, one of our uh, country's founding fathers, uh, he had a, this plan where he wanted to share the gospel with Native Americans. And the reason he wanted to share the gospel was, let's say, less than stellar. The reason he wanted to share the gospel was, with them was, to quote, he wanted them to behave correctly. And so what he did is he wrote a book in order to share with the Native Americans to share what he perceived the gospel to be with them. And I'm, I'm going to read to you from this book. It's a, a book that he called The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is what Thomas Jefferson wrote. He said, I too have made a wee little book from some materials, which I call The Philosophy of Jesus. It is a paradigm of his doctrines made by cutting the texts out of the Bible and arranging them on the pages of a blank book in a certain order of time or subject. A more beautiful or precious morsel of ethics I have never seen. It is a document in proof that I am a real Christian, that is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus. So please catch what Thomas Jefferson did in writing his little book. He took his Bible, he flipped it open, and he grabbed a razor blade, and he began to carefully cut the Bible into pieces. And what he did, if you read through his book, is he eliminated some things. He eliminated some of Jesus' teachings. He cut out all of his miracles. He cut out anything that he didn't consider to be part of what he called Christian ethics. And did you catch what he said about his wee little book? He said it was for him proof that he was a real Christian, that he followed some of the teachings from a Bible that he had cut and pasted together. And he said his version of Christianity was the most precious morsel of ethics he had ever seen. And this was how he was going to share the gospel with Native Americans so that they would, quote, behave correctly. Now, there is so much wrong with this, so many layers of bad that it's hard to even know where to start. So let's just start with the obvious. Thomas Jefferson had one thing, a belief that he considered supreme over all other beliefs. And he searched the Bible for things that matched his belief. For him, it was that people would have ethics, that they would behave in a proper way. And so he searched the Bible to find that stuff, and everything else in the Bible, he, let, he left on the cutting room floor. 
In other words, he crafted a Christianity in his own worldview's image. And his core belief that we are supposed to behave correctly was at the center of that Christianity that he created. But let's be super honest. He's not that far from each one of us, is he? Each one of us carries a little blank book of our lives. And on the cover of that blank book of our lives is our core belief system, our worldview, our, our decision-making grid. And that's right on the cover. And what we do is we look around this world for stuff that supports our belief system. Some of that might be a Bible verse or a podcast or a tweet. And we find these things and we cut them out and we place them. We tape them into our blank book. And everything else falls to the cutting room floor of our lives. For instance, let's say your core worldview is that you should pursue personal happiness. That your decision making will be determined by whether or not something will bring you what you believe to be Personal happiness. And by the way, I picked that one because it is, it, is the, it, it is the filter behind so many of our lives. And quite frankly, many divorces. In fact, I hear people all the time who, who say uh, that they get a divorce for irreconcilable differences, which usually just means this person isn't making me happy anymore, right? And let's say that's your core worldview then what you're going to do is you're going to look for things in the Bible and things on podcasts and things on Twitter that match that, and you're going to paste them into the book of your life, of your belief system. If pleasure is your core worldview, then you're going to make your decisions based on what brings you the most pleasure. Other core beliefs could be things like loyalty, loyalty to a person, cause, or country, or maybe a personal freedom is yours, or science, or convenience, or ambition, or fulfillment. And what happens is we put that on the cover of the book of our lives, and when the Bible contradicts what we believe, chop, chop, we just slice those verses out of our belief system. So let's go back to Thomas Jefferson. Here are the final words of his gospel, what he wrote as the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. He said this, and you'll recognize some of these words. Then they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen cloths with the spices as the manner of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new sepulcher, wherein was never man yet laid. And there they laid Jesus, and they rolled a great stone to the door of the sepulcher and departed. The end. That's the end of his gospel account. And because Thomas Jefferson's core belief was Christian ethics, you'll notice what he had need, no need for. The resurrection of Jesus. He cut the resurrection of Jesus right out of the Bible. He had the cross. He had Jesus' burial. He had his death and his burial, but that was it. Because for him, you can take Jesus' death and burial, and they don't necessarily take away from the most important thing on the front of his notebook, which was Christian ethics. The thing that Thomas Jefferson believed was proof that you are a Christian is that you behaved correctly. And so he had no need for one of the core beliefs of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus. 
But this morning, in our affirmation of faith, we, we declared truth that faithful Christians of all stripes have declared unwaveringly for centuries. We affirm the Nicene Creed, and in it, the simple phrase that on the third day, he, that is Jesus, rose again. Thomas Jefferson may have clipped this out of his Bible because it didn't fit his worldview. But this mind-boggling belief is at the core of the Christian faith. And if you don't have this, you don't have Christianity. You can be the most ethical person on the planet. You can be you can behave correctly by the world standards or by Thomas Jefferson's standards. Heck, you could behave correctly according to the Bible standards. But if you don't have this, you don't have Christianity. In fact, if you don't have the resurrection, you, you really must say that Jesus' life was a failure. It was a waste. The Roman cross was the final definitive word, and he was simply a fool, a nice fool, a kind of a hippie fool, but a fool nonetheless. Without the resurrection, you have to ultimately see Jesus as just this kind of well-meaning loser. Even more, if you don't have the resurrection, you have to have a different approach to the problem of death entirely. Because what you have is a Jesus who is just kind of a failed cult hero who dies. And a lot of his followers also die. And, and, and so maybe the best message on offer to us is that it's good to, to, you know, just to sort of submit yourself to this sad story of this world and humbly resign yourself. You know, it's just a, it's just a story of, of goodness against the inevitable odds. You know, goodness against the sorrows of a nature that ultimately always ends in death. And that's the kind of message of Christianity. Maybe that's the case. And in a strange way, like Jesus, like Jesus, we just kind of live on. You know, we live on in the memories of our family and friends. We sort of come back to life in their imaginations. And that's the good news on offer. Well, I don't think that's particularly good news at all. Woody Allen was once asked, would you like to live after you die in the minds and memories of your friends and family? He said, no, I'd like to live in my apartment. That's helpful realism. If we strip the Christian message of the resurrection, and it has to be a physical resurrection, it has to be a complete defeat of death, if it isn't, we have to understand that we have nothing to offer, really. No message of power or hope whatsoever. But indeed, because of the resurrection, because of Easter morning, the message of the Christian gospel the message that it has given to the world is a message of power and hope. No, no question. Christianity, as Professor C.F.D. Moodle said in a, a couple of generations ago, Christianity has ripped a hole in history, the size and shape of the resurrection. And in fact, the Apostle Paul would agree. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul lays out what he calls the issue of first importance. And this is what he writes. He says, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you. Okay, this is the gospel. This is the good news. Gospel just means good news. He says, I'm about to remind you of the good news. The good news I preached to you, which you received, 
in which you stand and by which you are being saved. In other words, he says, of everything else, this is the most important. This is of first importance. If you hold fast to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. This is one of the most important sentences ever written. Right here you have the irreducible minimum of the Christian faith. It defines the essence of the Christian message. This is the gospel, plain and simple. Jesus died for our sins. Jesus was buried in the ground. And Jesus rose from the dead on the, from the, dead on the third day. And all of this was, in Paul's word, in accordance with the Scriptures, which means this is all stuff that was prophesied. And you don't know what prophecy is. Prophecy is simply history that is written in advance. In other words, it, it is already predicted that this was, was coming. It, it was written in advance. It was in accordance with the Scriptures. It wasn't just, and it just wasn't predicted by the prophets of old. It was predicted by Jesus himself. It was ordained by God before the foundation of the world that Jesus wasn't going to be left in the ground. He rose from the dead. He, he physically, bodily rose from the dead. This is a non-negotiable fact. It sits at the absolute center of our faith. And a couple of verses later, Paul now writes, verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So we now know why Paul is, is getting into this, why he's sharing what he describes as of first importance. What was happening? Well, there were some Christians in the church in Corinth who thought, even though they believed in Jesus, that this life was all that there is. That this life is all that there will ever be. I can't help but wonder if that's what Thomas Jefferson thought, because if this life is all that there is, and this life is all that there will ever be, then Christian ethics do sound like maybe the most important thing. Behaving correctly does sound like the most important thing, because when you die, you die, right? That's it. Just like Jesus on the cross and buried in the ground, if that's where it ends, like it ends at, at, at the end of Thomas Jefferson's book about Jesus, if, 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 if that's it, if that's the filter by which you view the world, then it makes sense. And here's the thing. We don't see people raised raise from the dead. I've been in the room when people were born, my kids. I've been in the room when people have died. It seems to be all there is. People are born and people die. That's all we, that's all we ever see. Maybe that's why Plato, the philosopher, wrote hundreds of years before Jesus was born. He said, no one knows whether death is really the greatest blessing that they can have, but they fear that it's the greatest curse. Here's the deal. No one came to church today or is watching church online because they're just bored. Right? None of us are looking for something to do. Like, honey, there's nothing on TV, so let's watch church. Or, you know, like, like, we have nothing better to do on Sunday morning. We could drink mimosas or we could go to church. Like, 
we don't go to church because we're just bored out of our minds. We go to church, we enter a, a room like this or a service like this, we do, we do that because we're looking for something. We don't read the Bible because we, you know, we're too lazy to download you know, a different Kindle novel, right? We read it because we're looking for something. What are we looking for? We're looking for meaning, for purpose, for answers. And when the craziness of life settles down, when the TV is not on, when the internet goes down for whatever reason, and we finally have a few moments to think without any devices blinking in our face, we wonder if there really is meaning to all of this. And maybe that's why we always have devices blinking in our face. Because we don't want to be alone. We don't want to face the quiet. We don't want to wrestle with the meaning of life. Some of you maybe have lost a baby through miscarriage or a child in infancy. Others have lost a friend in a tragic accident or overdose or suicide or or a loved one to aggressive disease. Some of you are continuing to feel the sting and loneliness of, of losing a spouse even after many years. Death stalks us. And when it pounces, we want to know that there's a meaning to all of this. You know, over the past 25 years or so, I've conducted many funerals and stood before uh, numerous open graves, and at many of those, certainly not all, but at many of those, do you know what has been, there has been in the funeral or at the graveside? There has been hope. There has been a hope that this world is not all that there is, that there's something bigger and better than all of this, that there's someone that truly cares about all of the pain and suffering in this world, uh, enough to do something about it. See, what happens is deep down, we know that we don't want this to be all that there is. Because if our core belief on the front of our blank book is that this world is all that there is, the logical conclusion is, well, then let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? Do whatever you want. Maybe as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. But that, but that worldview makes sense. That's why it makes sense for so many people. And if that is the case, then the only true meaning is the meaning that we create out of the world around us. And the only hope that we have is that we hope to leave the world better than we left it. As just some kind of gift of kindness to other generations. But if that is all there is, then maybe that is the right way to live, and it's admirable. But don't you dare call it Christian. It was, however, a decidedly Greek way to live. Uh, 2,000 years ago in the city of Corinth, the city that Paul was writing to, it was a Greek city, and one of the poets wrote this in a, a famous piece called Amenides. He, he said this, When the dust hath drained the blood of man, once he is slain, 
there is no resurrection. And just last week, I heard a relatively new song by Ty Dollar Sign that says, live fast and die young. In 2,000 years, we have not changed our core belief as a culture that this world is all there is. It was Greek philosophy. It's our philosophy. Nothing is new under the sun. And to be honest, I, I appreciate people who wrestle with the meaning of life. I appreciate honest atheists. I appreciate honest agnostic. An agnostic is just someone who says that they, they, can't, they can't fully be sure what, 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 what to believe. Because I think that we need to be people who wrestle. Now, people who don't ever think about it and they're just atheists or agnostics, agnostics or even Christians, they don't think about it. I don't appreciate it nearly as much. Because we have to wrestle with what we believe. Because this is the stuff that matters greatly. This is why we have to decide what is our core belief on the front of our book. And for those who place the Bible at the center of our lives, there's a little bit of a wrinkle for us. See, if, if Jesus lived a sinless life, which means he never did anything wrong, and then he died... And then he was stuck in the ground and the stone was rolled in front of the tomb and he just stayed there, then death would be the end. But he didn't. The Bible teaches clearly he rose from the dead, which means death is not the end. That's not all there is. This world is not all that there is. Paul continues this thought. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and so is your faith. Do you catch his logical argument? Please hear this. He has two if-then statements. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus is dead. And if Jesus is dead, then your faith is in vain. The word vain just means, it means it's hollow. If someone today proved that Jesus did not rise from the dead, don't bother with the Christian faith. If Jesus did not rise race from the dead, the whole, our whole belief system is hollow. It's empty. It's meaningless. A lot of people like Thomas Jefferson want to follow the teachings of Jesus, but not bother with a lot of the stuff. They don't want to bother with all of the sin stuff. They don't want, they, they don't want to bother with all of the consequences consequences of sin or the heaven and hell, the death and resurrection stuff, and that's stupid. It's all or it's nothing. As Tim Keller says in, in the reflection quote on the front page of your worship guide, he says, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching but whether or not he rose from the dead. I mean, just think about that question. Is Jesus alive? Is he really alive? Did he really get out of the tomb on Easter Sunday? Did he really? I reckon if you did a survey in Santa Rosa today and asked how many people believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you asked that question proper, properly, you just kind of said it in a simple way, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? I reckon a large part, a large chunk of the public would say, yeah, I do. But I honestly think that the same answerers would probably change their answer if made to accept the impact that that should have on their lives. 
See, because if Jesus is really alive from the dead, well, listen, that, it changes everything. If he's risen, he, then he has authority. If he's risen, we better listen to him. If he's risen. If he is. If he's not, who cares? What is the point if he's not risen? The whole thing is just a, a waste of time. But if he is, then, our real, then, then really our lives can never be the same again. Because you understand that means everything he said is true. That means that he is Lord of everything. That means one day I am going to stand before him and offer an explanation for my life. That means the place that I belong is actually not on the throne of my life, not on the throne of the universe. The place I belong is submitting to the one who is on the throne because he's risen from the dead. So let me ask you this morning, have you ever truly faced the fact and reality of a resurrected God-man? Because that's what we have in Easter, and it changes everything. And by the way, this is the way to investigate Christianity. If you happen to be here this morning and you're considering Christianity, if you're considering it, this is the way, the only way to really consider it. It's, it's by asking the question, is Jesus alive? That's it. That's the question. All the other questions are secondary. Even questions like, is there a God? I mean, because you might agree that there is one, but you still got the wrong one. So who cares about that question? The question is, is Jesus alive? See, the resurrection is not an optional theology for a follower of Jesus. If Jesus has stayed dead, Christianity never would have taken off. If Jesus had stayed dead, like countless so-called messiahs of his day, Christianity would have fizzled and died out. For me, one of the things that I anchor my entire faith on is Christianity would not have launched if Jesus had not risen from the dead. There's absolutely no way any of his disciples would have done or endured any of the stuff that they did if Jesus was not alive. And Paul tells us that believing in vain is just believing in something that is not true. Look at what he says, 14 and 15. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified wrongly about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not in fact raised. Here's what happens. When we say that we're Christians, but we don't use the Bible to get our core beliefs, when we cut out parts of the Christian faith that, that we're uncomfortable with, when we say we believe in Jesus, but we take out the stuff that we think is weird or wrong, we're essentially saying God isn't represented by this book. Some of what this book teaches is actually not true. And what Paul says is, listen, I've been saying to you that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he didn't, you might as well throw out everything else I've taught because I have misrepresented God. People come to church, in my experience, because the, we're all looking for meaning. We're all looking for hope. And we think we might find it with God. And, and you know what? We're right. We will. Because that's what the gospel gives us. It gives us meaning and it gives us hope. 
but in doing so, it also gives us something else. You see, there's something called sin in this world. Sin is any failure to reflect the image of God in our nature, attitude, or actions. And it is sin that causes the pain and the suffering and sorrow in this world. And unfortunately, sin has infected every one of us like a disease. Every one of us carries around sin. We are all part of the pain and suffering and sorrow in this world. And at some point, you're going to realize that. You're going to realize that you're part of the problem. I'm part of the problem. We're, we're the problem. And then we realize we need something more than this world has to offer. Verse 16, for if, in, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Hear that. Your faith is worthless if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Why? Because you are still in your sins. This gets, at what, this gets at the core of what we all really need. We're looking for meaning. We're looking for hope. What we really need is forgiveness. You see, the ultimate issue we face is sin. Sin is the reason that there's death in the world. And the only way to deal with the death issue is to deal with the sin issue. And hope comes from dealing with, with the sin issue. Verse 18 and 19, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, which is what which so many people do, we are of all people most to be pitied. What is fascinating is just how much would unravel for Paul if the resurrection of Jesus were not true. If the, cor- if, if the corpse of Jesus had been found somewhere in the Middle East, it wouldn't just mean the walls of Christianity needed repainting. It would mean that the entire house had completely come crashing down. If Jesus is still dead, then sins have not been forgiven. If Jesus is still dead, then we are all lost hopeless liars if Jesus is still dead then our lives are not just mistaken but we are of all people most to be pitied and there are people out out there who look at on at us and our belief system and they say we're the most lame people in the world to believe that that the death of God on the cross would somehow save us they think we're pathetic and here's the deal if this world is all that there is we are. Paul says we are of all people most to be pitied, but, verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If sin is an infection, then Adam is patient zero. And we are all descended from him. And we all carry from generation to generation to generation to generation sin. That's why we can't save ourselves. That's why something bigger, someone bigger, someone outside of all of this needs to offer us forgiveness and hope and meaning. Someone who could transcend all of this and become one of us. Because he truly cares about us and cares about this world enough to do something about it. Only way we have meaning and hope and forgiveness is if there's someone out there that can deal with our infection of sin. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. That was what Good Friday was all about. He took all of our sins onto himself. He was infected for us and by us. 
and that he was buried in the ground. And what this Jesus did is of first importance. This Jesus brings us the good news that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again. And if you believe this and you place your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone to save you, he will. And so my urgent invitation to all of you, wherever you're coming from today, whoever you are, is you need to come to the living one. Come to Jesus. He's the meaning of history, and he will give you life and hope. I'll tell you what, you're never going to live the kind of life that Thomas Jefferson tells you you should live. Your ethics will always fall short. You will never behave correctly. But the good news is, the only one who ever did rose from the dead, conquering death, so that you can be with him forever. Believe in Jesus, the Jesus that rose from the dead, and he will save you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Jesus. We thank you that our faith is not in vain, and we pray that coming out of this Easter season, we would carry the gospel message of Jesus into our world, that we would be light in the darkness, life in the midst of death, not by our conduct, not by our behavior, but because our very lives point to Jesus. And we ask that you would use this powerful truth of the resurrection today to speak to us, to lift our heads, to give us hope, peace, joy, and for some of us to give us the new birth that we desperately need. And we pray all of this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.